And as we remember that Jesus is the one who came to save us, um, I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, one episode of Jesus' life that involves a centurion. So in Matthew chapter 8, we'll start at verse 5. This comes right after Jesus heals a leper who would be an unclean person, and yet Jesus, without any hesitation of, of breaking the, the Old Testament code of, of cleanliness and, and what it is to be ceremonially clean, Jesus reaches out to touch a leper, the one that would be unclean, the one that would make Jesus unclean, and yet to heal a human being created in God's image with all of the dignity that a human being should have, Jesus does not hesitate to reach out and touch even the one with leprosy, even those who everyone else would want to keep a distance from. Jesus does not hesitate. And now, Jesus takes another, well, the Gospels take another interesting turn of what Jesus is willing to do and who he's willing to speak with as we come to the story of the centurion. This is in Matthew 8, 5 through 13. Um, There's two things that often are translated differently. So depending on uh, which Bible you have or what version it is, um, you might hear servant or son. A little bit of ambiguity there. And in verse 7, you might hear, depending on your Bible, it might be a statement or a question that Jesus makes. We'll get to why that is a little later on, but mainly it's grammar. But as we come before God's word, let's pray for God's blessing upon the word as we do so. Let's pray. God, as we open the scriptures, whether it be on our phone or iPad or in our Bible of of pen and paper, Lord, as we open our Bibles, we ask that you open our hearts. We know that it's you that moves in the pages, but in our hearts. And so please, Lord, speak to us afresh. Whether this is a story that we know well from Sunday school and children and worship, or one that we've read from time to time, make it new to us today. With all of the past learning that we have, with all that we have acquired in knowledge over time, and yet in this moment, May it be fresh and new and speak to us. So Lord, may your word be open to us, that you may shape us and form us, bring us back to you in all of the ways that we need. And this we pray in the holy name of Christ. Amen. Matthew chapter 8, beginning at verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go and he goes. And that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. 
I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In a somewhat famous press conference for all of the most unfortunate reasons, Alexander Haig, former Secretary of State um, for President Ronald Reagan, took the mic at a press conference after an attempted assassination on President Reagan. Not much was known about what his condition was, just that he was in surgery, and the vice president was in the air flying back from Texas. And so taking the mic, Alexander Haig, with all of the intentions of all, I would say the best intentions, of letting everyone know that life will continue on, the situation is under control, it's going to be okay, Alexander Haig, when asked, well, who's in charge here, told the press, I'm in control here. And if you were alive during that incident or at all aware of it, it it became a great gaffe over time because what he said, I'm in control here, was maybe politically and legally not true. But what he meant was, I'm here, I'm keeping things going, It's all going to be okay. In an attempt to maybe make people feel a little bit better because a a traumatic thing had just happened and there was crisis among the airwaves of what was going on and people didn't know and uncertainty makes us just a little bit more anxious, Alexander Haig just wanted to say, hey, I'm steady at the helm. I'm in control here. But he was accused later of it it sounded like a, a, a coup, like I'm taking over. So what his intent... And what was said and the meaning that was made from his words all got mixed up and jumbled up and how unfortunate to end up being famous for all of the wrong reasons. But why would he say what he did? He didn't mean he was taking over control. He didn't mean that he somehow had usurped the vice president in terms of authority. But to say, I'm in control here, why would you say that? Okay, it could have been worded differently. There's political and legal clarity that he could have had. But honestly, the president of the United States had just been shot. And Alexander Haig, under quite a bit of pressure, I would think, maybe didn't have time to think of all of the best ways and words to say things. But what he rested on and what he was intending to communicate, I'm in control, we're all under control, it's going to be okay. Because when things are out of control, it stresses us out. And this is, this is a human nature thing. We all, to varying degrees and in different areas of our lives, maybe more important than others, we all want a certain level of control over our lives. And when we don't have that control, it stresses us out. I wonder how many of us have maybe lost a little bit of money in the last few weeks in our retirement funds because of what the stocks are doing, because of everything happening in Ukraine. 
that is out of our control, and yet it has an effect on us. And all of our best investment strategies and wise financial decisions, all of the things that are in our control are in place, and yet we can be impacted by something completely out of our control. We're all paying a little bit more at the gas pump right now. That is just out of our control. What's in our control is, well, how much extra driving do we do? Um, horse owners know that as many people joke on Facebook, oh yeah, everyone's going to start riding horses again. No, horses are not cheap. Not actually a great option. And I mean, I have my own personal feelings about horses. No offense to Hobmans or Packards or Redders, but yeah. Things are outside of our control. I do think about the amount of control and freedom and security that we have, though, where I might not have control over what I pay at the gas pump, and that might make me a little bit annoyed. And then I also remind myself that I'm filling up my car to drive around and do my normal daily tasks. And I do think about the loss of control in Ukraine right now, of what would I be telling Ada and Ben if we were filling up the van with gas because we were fleeing to Poland? I wonder what I would tell my kids then. The things that you don't want to lie but kind of want to, like, we're going to stay together and we're going to be okay. Yeah, we don't know anybody where we're going, but we're going to make some new friends. I'm not sure how long we'll be able to, until we'll be able to come home. That's like the astronomically high level of things being out of our control. And when I think about that, the gas pump really doesn't bother me that much. But that's maybe the highest level of things being out of your control. Your whole world is turned upside down, and the stress and anxiety are just exponentially high. We can't actually live like that. Our brain gets traumatized and scarred by that kind of activity. But we have lesser degrees of that all the time. Over the last two years, there's been lots of loss of control. Is school going to be open tomorrow? We don't know. What decisions are going to be made about what? Is, are the right people making the decisions? Are they making the best decisions? All of the uncertainty, all of the lack of control has affected all of us in some way. And we're already seeing that play itself out in just a higher stress and anxiety threshold and higher rates of depression throughout the whole country. And, I mean, I would assume throughout the whole world because a lot of control has been taken away. And it doesn't make us all control freaks, though, you know, if you're a control freak, someone in your family has probably told you that already, and there's already been some elbowing and snickering. I can see pretty well. But when we lose control, whether we're a control freak or whether we're pretty laissez-faire, there is some level of control that we need to feel calm. And when that gets disrupted, it stresses us out. We like control. We need things to be in decent and in good order. Whether it be cleaning up the house, or whether it be the decisions that we're making for our career, or whether it be figuring out where we're going to go, who we're going to go see, when and where for the holidays. All of these different things can have some level of stress on us because we are people who need some control. Some of that's normal. Some people are a little bit over the top. But let's not point fingers because what might matter a lot to one person doesn't matter very much to another. But at some level, all of us need some stability that comes from things being in control. 
And that's what I think Alexander Haig was trying to communicate to the nation was, it's under control. Don't freak out. Don't panic. It's under control. I think about control and our need for it and how our faith is challenged when things are out of control. And when we don't like what things are happening, we don't like what's going on, we don't like how it's transpiring, we don't like any of that because it's out of our control, it challenges our faith. Because it does just stress us out. And we're wondering, God, how are you going to show up in all of this? Will you show up in all of this? These are our wonderings that go through our minds, and they can keep us up at night, whether it be thinking about what tomorrow is going to bring. It can be like the person who's afraid of public speaking, thinking about the next time they're going to go up front, and their whole body is feeling that stress. It can be any variety of things. And then enter into the Gospels, the story of a centurion coming to Jesus. And a reminder that the centurion, the Roman centurion, is a pretty quintessential piece of control of the Roman Empire. And of all the characters in the New Testament, the Roman centurion probably has the most impact over controlling the environment around him. He is a centurion. He is a military commander of the occupying force in Israel and Palestine. The Roman centurion is the one who is in control, and he is in charge, and he can order people around however they want. If you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus saying, if someone makes you walk one mile, go with them too, as, as, as submission and humility, Jesus is poking at what the Romans would make people do. Because if I were the centurion for a day, I don't think that's an authority that would suit me well, I could be like, hey, you know what? I've got to carry some stuff from here back to the storage room. Hey, Steve Rohorst, you're under my control. You do it. And if Steve is a Roman soldier or not, or just an everyday citizen, doesn't matter. I'm the centurion. I'm in control. I've got the armed guards. You don't have sword, spears, and shields, so you have to do what I say, right? And you would. Well, you would because you're a good person, but that's the control that the Roman centurions had. They could make things happen. And they were allowed to make it happen. And here comes a centurion to Jesus in an hour of need. And he surprises Jesus. Now, we're, we're told in the scriptures that Jesus was amazed by him. And, and I think there's, um, if you want to hold on to, whoa, Jesus was, was amazed? Like, I thought Jesus knew everything. Consider this. Have you ever been impressed without being surprised? Impressed without being surprised. Like, like when our youth do a really good act for the lip sync battle, I'm not surprised that they did a good job, but I'm still impressed. It makes an impression on you. You can be amazed. And in a similar way, that's what John Calvin and other theologians have said. This is what Jesus is experiencing of pointing out this impressive act of faith, that the centurion, the one who is in control, comes to Jesus and says, hey, you know what? I've got a situation in my life that I am not in control of, but I know that you are in control. And I know that I can't change this, but I know that you can. I know I can't will or wish this to be better, but you can make it better. The Roman centurion comes to Jesus with that attitude and mindset. And he doesn't order him, though he could. 
the Roman centurion could have had just a pragmatic faith. He could have just been someone who heard that Jesus did some miracles and thought, well, you know what? This Jesus character, if he can do something, he could. The centurion could have approached Jesus and says, hey, I have a servant who's at home and paralyzed, and you are going to heal him. The centurion could have said that. After all, doesn't he explain this to Jesus? I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. That one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And the centurion could have treated Jesus as one of his subjects. Said, hey, you, do this for me. Dot, 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 or else. But he doesn't. He doesn't even make a request. And it's already striking with this particular centurion, a military commander who has certainly seen combat. He has seen people die. He has seen blood. He has seen hardship and strife. He's someone who's probably been hardened by a little bit of his own life experiences. And he comes to Jesus saying, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Already there's something interesting that he cares so much about this servant. This is where word usage in the New Testament, some suggest this is a similar episode from the Gospel of John where it's someone's son. Either way, there is a tremendous amount of concern. Human suffering still bothers this centurion. He's not so far gone that he's seen hardship and he's seen the end of life that he does not somehow cease to care for the dignity and well-being of his servant. He still cares about human suffering and would love to see it gone. I wonder as we pray for different folks in the armed services here, sons and daughters of our congregation, I think there might be a kindred spirit with this centurion. And throughout the centuries, the centurion has been used as an example of Jesus never tells him to quit his job. He never tells him to leave, but he commends him for a different type of faith but it's how he shows up. My servant is suffering, and I need you to do something. But he doesn't order Jesus to do anything. I wonder if we think about Lent and transformation, that we take, don't take for granted that the centurion, a lot of transformation has already taken place. And so if we take some of the cues from different folks that we're taking a look at, like Nathaniel and Nicodemus and now the centurion, I wonder if we ever pray like the centurion. There's no ask that the centurion makes, but rather he just states a point of fact, and that actually seems to be enough. Lord, this person is suffering. That's a prayer. And if you've ever taken the bulletin home and read through those names and not sure how to find all the words to pray, the centurion teaches us how to pray in saying, Lord, Steve Essenberg is suffering. Lord, Belinda Klein is recovering from surgery. Now, we add things to it, certainly, but to express the need, and the need alone, is a prayer. The centurion makes that prayer. He does not order Jesus. He does not ask Jesus for anything, but he states the point of fact because he knows, because there's some transformation that has already taken place in the centurion's life, that he knows that as much as he's bothered by human suffering, that Jesus must also be bothered by human suffering. Lord, this servant of mine is suffering. 
And then Jesus responds. He doesn't turn away. He doesn't cower away. He either says, I shall go to him and heal him, or shall I come and heal him? It's actually not clear whether it's a question or a statement. In the Pew Bibles and in some translations, it's a statement, which kind of lines up with what Jesus has done so far when people mention something and Jesus volunteers to go and heal. And word choices make us wonder, is this a question? The point is, though, beyond the wonderings that we might have about New Testament text criticism, is Jesus does not hesitate to go. But the centurion is the one who stops him. And he stops him, first of all, by saying, Lord, I don't deserve. This is a John the Baptist type of moment. Remember when Jesus was baptized and John the Baptist said, I can't. I can't even untie the straps of that man's sandals because I'm not worthy. The centurion has that same sense about him, that, that he is not worthy to have Jesus come into his house. But there's something else about his faith. This, this faithful foreigner of a centurion. There's something else about his faith, and it's, it is maybe partly, in fact, that he doesn't, he doesn't believe that Jesus has to touch his servant or say magic words over him. It's not just that the mode of healing is free in, Jesus's, in the centurion's mind. It's not just that he thinks, okay, well, for this to work, Jesus has to do a certain thing. He thinks Jesus can do whatever Jesus wants. But it's the explaining of authority and that magic word, control, that is the pinnacle of the centurion's faith. I, myself, am a man under authority, says the centurion in verse 9, with soldiers under me. And I tell them to do stuff and they do it. But how authority worked is the centurions spoke with the authority of the emperor. If a foot soldier were to disobey a centurion, they're not disobeying the centurion. They are disobeying the emperor, the Caesar. You don't do that. You don't disobey the emperor. And the centurion is saying, in the same way, Jesus, I know where you came from. I know that you came from the almighty and everlasting and all-powerful and all-holy God. I know that that is whose authority that you are with, which means that if you speak and say the word, that the world, the cosmos, nature itself cannot disobey you. If you just say the word, I know that it'll happen because I know the authority that you're coming from and that's the authority that you speak with. So if you say it is so, then it will be so. That is tremendous faith and also a yielding of control. The centurion doesn't order Jesus, but rather he says, I know who's really in control here. I know who's in control here. And even though I'm the centurion, I've got the armed guards, I've got the military pipe, I might, I am part of the occupying force. I know that I'm not the one in control here. You're the one in control, Jesus. And so, Jesus is amazed by his faith. That, that there's something about the centurion, some amount of transformation that has already happened, that he just gets it. The centurion already believed and then received a sign of healing. Whereas attention that Jesus holds with all of Israel throughout the, throughout the Gospels 
is that Israel, more often than not, the Israelites saw a sign and then believed for a little while. They, they needed the sign and then they'd believe. But the centurion, he just believed and then he got the sign as a side effect of his already believing. And Jesus, for this reason, says, I haven't found anyone with, even in, in Israel with such great faith. That there will be, from the east and the west, people who come to the great banquet. This is spoken of in Isaiah chapter 25. That there will be those who will come from outside because they already are faithful. And there will be those who they think they've got it all down pat. They're like Nicodemus before meeting Jesus. Hey, what I'm doing, I know Jesus' lordship. I got this one. And no need for a savior. Jesus is pushing on that whole idea of, no, no, no. Getting the basics right is a really good start. But if there's no transformation, if there's no depth or growth, if there's no understanding of, of Jesus as Lord and Savior, then we're going to miss the bus on what's really going on here. The centurion models all of this for us so well that this random foreigner from who knows where originally comes to Jesus and knows that he has all the authority in the universe to make anything happen. That could be transformative to how we think about prayer. Even just naming the situation matters to Jesus. What are the situations that we name? Might be for a family member day in, day out. Might be for our own inner demons that plague us man, we wish we could get a break from, that we wish we could get some relief from. Might be from concerns throughout the world. Might be the daily updates about Ukraine and Russia. Come, Lord Jesus. Save us, and save us from ourselves. And here we have a centurion who says, I know the limits of my control. I only have so much control and so much authority. And even though I speak for the emperor, I know that that has its limitations too. But the only one with infinite power is you, Jesus. I know where you came from. I know that if you say the word, it'll happen. Because nothing can disobey your word. This is the faithful foreigner known as the centurion. And then there's something else that happens just just one last detail that I, that I can't help but to, I can't pass it up. It's what Jesus says after this whole exchange. It, it's what he tells the centurion to do. Did you catch that Jesus gave an order to a centurion? Because earlier the, the, the centurion said about his servants, I tell this one go and he goes. And what does Jesus say to the centurion in verse 13? Go. Jesus gave an order to a Roman centurion, and the centurion obeyed his order. And yes, these are the same brand of soldiers that will be taking part in the crucifixion of Jesus, but this one, this one took his orders from Jesus. Jesus said, Go. And he goes. Just amazing. It's so steadfast and beautiful 
And in the midst of all the other turmoil in the world, this one miracle was granted to end human suffering. This one centurion just totally gets it and follows Jesus' orders and does exactly what Jesus said, and it happened exactly the way Jesus said it would, which is what the centurion believed all along. What are your prayers for human suffering? And when you can't find the words, is it enough just to name it before God? This person is suffering. This person's having a hard time. God, I am stressed out about what's happening in our world. To know that this and this alone, naming it before God, is a prayer. And should be a practice that we make a regular practice in our lives. Be a little bit more like that centurion. This is where we come to Jesus and say, you know what? I know you're our Savior. I know that you forgive us of our sins. And I know that and believe that on a really personal, intimate level. And also that you are Lord over all creation, as we sang about just a little while ago. Just say the word and it will be so, God. Pray to Jesus as Savior. And pray to Jesus as Lord. And holding up both of those lenses. Take a look at your own control. What's really in your control? And what isn't? And where is that going to just stress you out in a way that is very real and is worth praying about? And is worth saying, I don't like this at all. Go. And this one goes. We would do well to pray like the centurion and to somehow wrestle with that understanding that his yielding of control is commended as the greatest faith that Jesus has seen better than even that in Israel. And this we learned from someone that we would probably stereotype as a brute, as a bully, and yet here is amazing faith. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you knowing that just as that centurion came to you stating his needs before you, you knew. And he knew that you knew. So as we come to you in prayer, today and every day, may we recognize and just have a little bit of that same faith of the centurion. May we come to you with all the things that stress us out, that make us anxious, that are weighing down on us. And we come to you knowing that you care about human suffering. You care about human dignity. And you come to us knowing that we probably do want to hold on to things a little bit too tight sometimes. Sometimes we need to. Sometimes we don't need to, but we can't stop ourselves out of force of habit. God, may the centurion be one of our faith heroes. May his steadfast faith be a model for us. And not just a model, but may we remember that we share this same faith as we come to you, Jesus, as Savior and Lord. And with the words of the prophet Isaiah from chapter 25, we remember this same vision in prayer. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples a banquet of aged wine, 
the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from their faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Amen.